So when my Max, who was my third child, was very young, we were still counting his age in months. So that's how young he was. Jill and my daughter and my older son had to take an errand. They uh, had to take somebody to the airport. And I told Jill that I would be up to the task of watching Max. That was a dumb decision. He was so young that we were still bathing him in the sink like every good family from the South does. And we were bathing him in the sink. I, I was bathing him in the sink. And I had forgotten to get a towel. Oh, this is not going to be a good story. I had forgotten to get a towel for him. And I decided that he was old enough and responsible enough, though he couldn't talk or stand up on his own, for me to walk away five feet and grab a towel out of the cabinet. So I did. I walked away just five feet, and I no sooner got to the cabinet, just literally two to three seconds, I hear a thud on the floor. Boom. Yeah. Exactly. Those were the moms going, ah. The emotion you're having right now is the emotion my wife had at the end of the story. So I rushed over to him, and I picked him up. And as soon as I picked him up, I had the scariest moment of my parental life up to that point. He fainted, which means in my mind he died uh, right in my arms. His eyes rolled back in his head. Literally, it was the scariest moment of my, of my life. Now, who do you think I called? On our phone was speed dial. The doctor, emergency room, poison control. I called my wife. Exactly. I called my wife and I said, you have got to come home and take care of this child. I knew that, that, that she would be able to figure out what we needed to do. She talked me down off the ledge. Max has been almost the same ever since. <laughs> Now, my point is, guys, ladies, men, women, you know, there's the special role of moms and women in our lives. And it comes from a very, very special place. It comes from a, a personal place in the sense that they are a part of our lives. They've invested in us, and we're grateful. That's why our culture sets aside a day to honor the impact of women at large on our culture, specifically moms. But really, at its root, there is a valuable place for women in the scriptures. And what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to attempt to help ladies in the room and men in the room understand God's heart for women. We're in the middle of a message series called Mine, and it's a message series about stewardship. Typically, depending on your church background, that's the time at which you start guarding your wallet and holding your purse tight, because when a pastor mentions stewardship, it often means we want your offering. But that's not what we're looking at in this message series. What we're looking at is, what has God given us that ultimately belongs to Him, but He's given it to us to manage? And God has given us this very precious thing called women, not to manage or own. All women are a gift from God. They are valuable, and we're going to look at the places in the Bible that elevate their status. So if you want to go with me to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, right at the very beginning. Now, depending on your church background while you're turning there, some people act as if their story of the Bible begins with Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is that place in the Bible where things go terribly wrong, and a perfect world turns very imperfect, and all kinds of difficulty and trauma and challenges begin. And the rest of the story of the Bible deals with the impact of Genesis chapter 3. And so sometimes when you come to some churches, what you hear is we got to fix that bad stuff. we got to get our lives cleaned up. We need to correct what's wrong. And it seems as if that's the primary message that they want us to hear. 
But there are two chapters in front of Genesis chapter 3. You might wonder what they're called. By the way, they're called Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 for the slow in the room here. But Genesis chapter 1 and 2 don't have the impact of that negative event that happened that left the world forever marred, forever scarred. It doesn't have it. It gives us a picture of what was intended in the world, the original blueprint, not the adjusted blueprint, the original blueprint that God had in his heart for all of us, for men and for women. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, here's what it says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then it says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And if you were here last week, we talked about this powerful image of God that is revealed to us here and what its implications are. That while we don't own anything and while everything belongs to God, God chose to give us royal dignity. He made us in his image. The king of the universe made all of us, men and women, in his image. And he set us up to manage and rule over this world that he's given us. He didn't mean for us to be tossed along by the turning tides of life. He didn't mean for the winds of difficulty and chaos to blow into our life and create all kinds of challenge. He meant for us to rule and reign. And he gave us an elevated position. And what this means specifically today for women is, you are more. You are more. You are more than what our culture tells you that you are. You are more than the reflection you see in the mirror. You're more than the numbers you read when you step on a scale. You're more than the wrinkles you see when you put on makeup. You're more than the number of heads you turn when you walk across a room. And you're more than how many meals you serve or how nice your house looks and how well made it is. And you're more than what men think of you. And you're more than how our culture evaluates you. You are more. And you know it, don't you? Do you know it? Do you know that you are more? I'm not sure that all the women I've encountered in this world have inside of them in the in the safe deposit box of their soul, this repository of truthful information from God's word, that the women in this world, the women in your life, are more than what this world tells them that they are. They're more than their insecurity. I'm not sure they hold on to that, and the information I have that leads me to believe that maybe it's not quite in their grasp, is I see a lot of interesting things happen in our culture as it relates to women. I see a lot of interesting things happen on television, read about them in books, observe them in my role as a pastor. When I taught high school, I saw it in young girls, largely unfiltered. I don't believe that the idea that women are made in the image of God has taken root the way God meant for it to take root. I see tired women. I see emotionally frustrated women. I see women with all kinds of relational discord in their lives. And it was in an environment like that where people are emotionally weary and soul tired, soul tired, that Jesus came in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, and he said, come unto me, all who are tired, 
weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. This deep down peace and rest and comfort, as opposed to a fighting and a turmoil and an image management and time spent living up to somebody else's expectation. Jesus said, I'll give you rest for your soul. Now this is an interesting set of realities from God's word. It stands in contrast to what many prognosticators who speak on television about the church, about Christianity, really want us to believe. They image to us that somehow Christianity is the bane of existence for women, that it represses and holds them down. But I think what you're going to see over the next few minutes is that is anything but the truth. And Jesus said, the truth, if you know it, It'll set you free. See, Jesus was born in a Greco-Roman culture. Greece was out of power, but Greek thought still had a lot of influence. Rome was fully in power. And in the Greco-Roman world, there was a shortage of women. Historians tell us for about every 140 men, there were 100 women. And so the obvious question is, what happened to the other women? Historians tell us, we don't have to wonder about this, they were left to die. They were. In the ancient world, in the world in which Jesus lived, the world he grew up in, women did not have an elevated status. When a woman gave birth, since they didn't have sonograms, they didn't know what they were going to have, when a woman gave birth and it was a boy, they were overjoyed. If the boy was healthy, that woman was given extra food, extra rations. She was taken care of, especially. If the boy was injured, infirm, he was often left out in the elements. And if it was a girl, the same kind of fate too often befell on them. Leaving unwanted infant girls to die of exposure was commonplace in the day and time in which Jesus lived. It did happen on occasion with male babies, but only if there was a challenge, only if they were deformed. In ancient Rome, there was a law called the Law of Romulus. You may have heard of Romulus and Remus. By this law, a father was required to raise all the male children that were born to him, but only required to raise the firstborn female child. All the other daughters were at his whim to do with what he wants, typically to dispose of. This is the world in which Jesus was born. At the city of Delphi, an ancient city, archaeologists uncovered enough information to know of the 600 known families who lived and, and did life in the city of Delphi. Only six families raised more than one daughter. The rest, apparently, were left to die. In the ancient world, girls were kind of disposable. This is the cultural reality out of which the Bible is gifted to us. So just as a matter of history, how did that change? Why did that change? What happened to turn the tide against this pervasive overwhelming reality in the Greco-Roman world. The Roman, the Roman world is the world in which all of our intellectual tradition, all the Western intellectual mentality ultimately originates from. What changed it? Well, there was this little movement of people, very small, who said all children matter to God, male and female. And they all carry the image of God. And therefore, infanticide, Gender side is wrong, and it's got to stop. They didn't have any political clout or influence, but in their community, they began to do things very differently. 
They rejected infanticide, and they wouldn't do it. And in fact, they would walk around their cities in their normal daily lives, and when a child was discarded, they would take that child in. At great economic peril, there was no welfare system saying, if you take in a child, then the government will kick in a little extra assistance. Largely poor, uneducated, without any political clout kinds of people walked around taking these babies in. And they took in older women as well, widows, the Bible calls them, who were turned aside, who had no economic means of survival. They were taken in by this little band, this little community, who decided that they would follow the teachings of a man by the name of Jesus. They would commit their lives to him, and from the words he left and from the example he gave, they would treat people differently. They would bless and welcome children. They would bless and welcome women. They read in Jesus' words this inclusivity, this honoring of people in Jesus' spirit that was a part of what originally drew people to him. And by the way, it still does. And it marked their relationships. If you're a woman here today, I hope this understanding of what Jesus did and who he is and how he values you, I hope it marks you today. He was not the kind of person in the ancient world that people typically encountered. In the ancient world for women, for instance, in Athens, girls received little or no education. Girls were legally classified as children, no matter how their age, how old they were, or how high their IQ. And so therefore, they were always the property of some man. And they were often married by the onset of puberty or before. And around our world, that still happens on occasion. To give you an idea of how much they were property, if you seduced a married woman, you would face a worse sentence than if you violated a woman against her will. Because if you seduced her, you were, in effect, trampling, trespassing upon the property of another. And that property might give you some of the husband's money or give you some of his rights. And so that the laws about women were largely property laws. But not for Jesus. When you look at the way he encountered women and what he said and what he talked about, it was a wildly different reality. It was countercultural. It was subversive, if you will. And people flocked to him. That's why when you and I read our Gospels in our Bibles, the picture of Jesus dealing with women is not the picture that we get when we look at the historians marking for us what happened in the ancient world. In the ancient world, women were typically understood to have their highest and best calling in bearing children, particularly male children. In ancient Sparta, if you've ever seen the movie, a mother who gave birth to a son would receive literally twice as much food. And the only women whose names were recorded on headstones, tombstones, in the ancient world were those who died giving birth. Childbearing was close to their identity. So one day, Jesus was walking around, and in Luke chapter 11, verse 27, an interesting exchange takes place. In opposition to the world in which Jesus was born, Jesus is going to show in this exchange a radically different idea. In Luke eleven twenty-seven, 27, 
Here's what the Bible says. While Jesus was doing his thing, while he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out and said to him, Blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you. It sounds like a compliment, doesn't it? And, and it was. Like, your mom, good for her. She got a good one. Way to go. Her identity, her fulf- the role she was destined to was fulfilled, and you've done a great job. And so you would think that maybe Jesus would say, wow, thank you. That's awesome. You like my mom. So do I. She's cool. But he doesn't say that. What he says is, verse 28, blessed rather, not are the ones who, who gave birth and who nursed me. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Basically, Jesus is saying to the woman, you're wrong. For Jesus, the highest calling of a woman was no longer the bearing of children. Now, for mothers and fathers, bearing children is a high calling. It's noble. It's special. It's near the top of the list. But for Jesus, it's not the top of the list. For Jesus, the highest calling is to be in a relationship with God, to hear his words and to receive his word. To be elevated from living in the mire and the muck of Genesis chapter 3 and its implications and be elevated to recapturing Genesis 1 and 2 where we had a relationship with God that was stable and intimate and precious and our value and worth was on display. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So what this means is if you have children or if you don't have children, God wants a relationship. And you haven't missed out on life, ladies, if you don't have children. Because Jesus' call on your life is first and foremost at the top of the list to have a relationship with him and to experience the life-transforming encounter that a relationship with Jesus brings to your life. And so if you don't have children, you're not defined by that. And if you do have children, you're not defined by how they turn out. Can I hear an amen? Yeah. You're defined by a relationship with the creator who made you in his image. So the highest calling of a woman, it's also the highest calling of a man, is to share in this common humanity made in the image of God and in an intimate relationship with our creator. Our highest calling. And through Jesus This calling is now available to any woman, regardless of her age or her marital status or her childbearing capacity. And this was a remarkable concept in the ancient world. So if you're a woman today and you have not taken up Jesus' call to real life, to experience a relationship with him through his death and resurrection on the cross, I challenge you today to make today, Mother's Day, the day to do that. Many of you, have heard the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is just doing his stuff, and he happens upon a a house where there is a lady by the name of Martha and her sister by the name of Mary. And they have an interesting encounter that reveals just a little bit of how much Jesus valued women. Mary gets all involved in listening to Jesus. She sits at his feet and hears him. But Martha, she's busy cleaning the house, and she gets upset at her sister. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 41, here's what it says. Martha, Martha, after she's complained to Jesus, 
Martha, Martha. I think when the Bible uses your name twice in a row, when Jesus does that, I don't think it's going to be a good thing. Martha, Martha. It's like, you know, my mom, when I was a kid, she'd call me by all my names in a row. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. Martha is busy. And so typically, when we hear this story, we're told, don't be a Martha all busy. Be like Mary, contemplative. Be quiet and be simple. But that's not really the point here. The point is, is that Mary somehow in her encounter with Jesus felt comfortable enough to sit at his feet, which in the ancient world, the phrase to sit at the feet of somebody was a rather, rather particular kind of reality. It was the posture of a disciple. When, when Paul was giving his, his qualifications for being an apostle and for being a leader, and he was kind of giving his biography, he said, I used to sit at the feet of Gamaliel an ancient learned scholar. I used to sit at his feet. I was his disciple. I was his understudy. He was my tutor. And this was Mary taking the posture of one who was under the tutelage of Jesus. And this didn't happen in Jesus' day. Women were not welcomed there. They were to stay in the kitchen. They were to keep their reality confined by the way people spoke over them. Their role was limited. And so Martha was doing her expected role. And she's frustrated that Mary won't. But Mary had heard something else in Jesus, that she was invited, that she could have a place with him, that she could become a disciple, a learner, and that the words of Jesus applied even to her. Mary did what the culture valued in men and became a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus said, Martha got it wrong and Mary got it right. And even to this day, Every woman in this room knows what it is to be stereotyped and slotted into some role and have culture's definition spoke over them, have some man try to define them as something less than fully accepted by God and perfect in his image as they are. And then there's Jesus calling them to a higher calling. I don't know what you've heard about this man Jesus and I don't know what you believe about him theologically whether he was the son of God who died on a cross and is resurrected or not but you have to marvel at the way he broke the rules and made it crystal clear to every single person women included you're welcomed at my feet you can have a full part you're fully advantaged when you're in a relationship with me humankind has been getting this wrong all through history when God first made man and woman in his image, we read, in his image, both of them, male and female, it says it twice in one verse, man and woman in his image. And yet human history has been on the wrong side of what God wanted for us all along. And too many women have bought the lie. Too many folks in this room, too many of the teenagers in this room, too many of the young girls in our children's ministry right now have begun hearing and listening to lies that want to define them as something less than made in the image of God and being made in the image of God perfectly, intrinsically valuable as they are. So at a marriage enrichment weekend, when a man and a woman went to work on their marriage, the husband and the wife listened to the instructor declare these words. It's essential, he said, that a husband and wife know things that are important to each other. And then he addressed the men and he said, can you name or describe your wife's favorite flower? So the husband leaned over to his wife and he said, Betty Crocker, all purpose, right? Isn't that it? 
Yeah. Obviously, he didn't get it, right? We have these roles and these expectations. And for some women, they bring incredible joy. And the Bible isn't silent about some of this stuff. But it never puts our value and our worth in the role we play in the, in the arena of human interaction. It puts our value and worth in the fact that we are made in the image of God and that God invites us into full relationship with him. And so Jesus is inviting women to be his disciples. And he's calling for women to step out of stereotypes. And he's calling them to have influence, which was just unthinkable in the ancient world. You may have heard of the Samaritan woman. This is the woman who Jesus meets, and the Samaritans were hated. And she had a, a storied past. But Jesus talks with her one-on-one. And it's a strange occurrence, because when the disciples walk up on them, the Bible tells us that they're amazed that Jesus is talking to her. Because in the ancient world, that wouldn't have happened. But with Jesus... All women, regardless of their past, are invited to a relationship with him. And so he says to her, I know you. I know you're a woman. I know your past. And yet, you and I can be in a relationship. I know you're poor. I know you have a checkered past. I know your life is hard. And yet, I care about you. And so this rabbi Jesus, this teacher, he sits at a well and he engages her in a deep theological conversation. And he's valuing her and he's calling out in her her influence and her importance and the impact she can make on the world of course she wants to talk to him and of course she runs and tells everybody come and listen to the man who understands me who's told me all about me because an encounter with jesus like that leaves people changed the ceo and his wife were traveling on a vacation and they stopped at a gas station and the ceo goes inside to pay And when he comes outside, his wife is talking to the gas station attendant. So he gets in the car, and they drive off. And he asks his wife why she was talking to that guy. And it turns out the wife used to know him. They used to go to school together. In fact, they used to date each other. And so the CEO is kind of feeling smug about himself, and he eventually says to his wife, I bet I know exactly what you're thinking. I bet you're thinking you're glad you married me, a CEO, instead of that service station attendant. And the wife said, no. Actually, I was thinking if I had married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas station attendant. (laughs) She was beginning to get the sense of the influence and the impact she could have. That her partnership with God in this life would bring about more than just existence. He would bring about revolutionary importance. He would bring about significant role and impact. Do you remember Jesus' words about adultery? When he was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said that this world um, teaches you that, that sexual sin is bad and that you shouldn't do it. But I say to you, if you have lust in your heart, if you look at a woman to lust after, you have lust in heart, then you're already guilty. I mean, you're already down that road. In our world, we talk about a sexual double standard where women are held to a different standard than men. But in the ancient world, a sexual double standard wasn't just what was talked about or joked about. It, in fact, was the law. And people weren't embarrassed by it. It was embraced. Caesar Augustus, who's mentioned in your Bible, ruled that adultery was a public offense, but only in women. Men were at free reign to have sex with prostitutes and slave girls. And slave girls that were owned by them were sexually available to their masters and often rented out for extra income. This was the world in which Jesus was moving and operating. So when you read his story, 
his revolutionary message is even more stark. Begin to get principles that matter to him that speak even to our world today. In ancient Rome, in Jesus' time, a man could only commit adultery by sleeping with another man's wife because that wife was considered the property of her husband. Adultery was a property crime. When Jill and I got married, she told me that she considered adultery a property crime and that if I committed adultery, she made it very clear what piece of my property I would lose. (laughs) In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard it. It was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus comes to a world that has an upside-down sexual ethic, and he says, the people involved in this drama, all of them are valuable, not just the male gender. Every woman is valuable. Those that have means and those that don't. Those who have elevated IQs and those who don't. Those who have political clout, and those who don't, those who are married to the right people, and those who aren't. Every single person has value and worth. And so Jesus, in those same kinds of ways, reiterates the importance of marriage. And I want to make one clear point here in Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read, he said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother mother, and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What Jesus was doing here was elevating the role of women as equally valued in the marriage partnership. She doesn't take on the role of the property in the marriage. They come together, and the two equals are united and become one. This was revolutionary. Jesus also appeared first to women after his resurrection. It's an interesting set of events. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the women are there, and he meets them, and he says, now I want you to go and spread the news about what you've seen. In the ancient world, this was ridiculous because a woman's testimony was not considered valid. It wasn't considered reliable. In fact, if you wanted to bring scandal to somebody's testimony in court, you would start talking about the women and what the women had said. And just in doing that, it would put an air of, of doubt over top of the entire case. There was a Roman historian by the name of Celsus. And after a century or two, he wanted to discredit Christianity because it was growing so rapidly. So in order to discredit Christianity, here's what he said. He said that the resurrection rests on the tales of hysterical women. And in the ancient world, he knew that if he could make that claim stick, then everybody would ignore the claims that Jesus, who was dead, was now alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father and making intercession for us so that we could have a relationship with God. The Roman, or I'm sorry, the Israeli historian Josephus, he wrote this. He said, let not the testimony of a woman be admitted in court. So as a general rule, women were not able to give legal testimony in a trial. And yet Jesus appeared to these women, and to those women, he gave them the commission, you go and you be my, legal term here, my witnesses. You be the ones testifying of my resurrection. Mark chapter 16, verse 10 through 11 tells us a little bit about what happened. So this woman went and told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping what she had seen, the resurrection. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, 
They did not believe it, in part because it was overwhelming to believe, even though he had told them that would happen, but in part because of the messenger. Now, one of the reasons I try to convince people in our day that the Bible is reliable is because if you were going to write the story of about a man who was resurrected, and you wanted people to believe that, you would never put the primary teller of that story, you would never cast that person as a woman, because that would instantly cast a shadow of doubt. But in the Bible, they don't make things up. It casts the story correctly. It tells it the way it was. And I think this lends reliability to the story. And it tells us how much Jesus valued women. In the early church, women made up the vast majority of people who were alive. They, uh, alive in the church. They funded it. They preached it. They got together and did service. They cared for one another. They took special care of the widow. In Jesus' day, if you outlived your husband, it was a bit of a scandal. In fact, if you lasted two years beyond him and you hadn't been remarried, you were looked down upon. You were a drag on the economy. But in the early church, when you read your epistles, the rest of your New Testament after the Gospels, what you find is a lot of care is taken to care for these cast-out women. In fact, what we could say as the biblical roots of Mother's Day, if you will, John chapter 19, we see what Jesus does with a widowed woman, his own mother. John chapter 19, verse 26 to 27. When Jesus saw his mother there at the cross, everybody had deserted except for a few women and John. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, he said, here's your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her home and he cared for her. So in this community, this little band of people, the widow was honored. And it was honored because Jesus honored the widow. And so when you read about them, and you understand the overwhelming cultural pressure that was on them to conform, to treat women like property, to make them objects of sexual pleasure, to say to them, you only have value and worth as you are in relationship to a man you begin to see a very different picture in your Bible. And this is why it angers me why in freshman and sophomore and junior Bible classes and colleges all across this country, Christianity is painted as somehow subverting and undermining the role of women. History doesn't bear this out. We're ignorant. We need to learn more and read our scriptures and find the Jesus. In fact, this world has a long way to go to catch up with Jesus' heart for women. The New York Times says that in our very day, in this world, that due for a preference of boys over women because of exposure, unequal health care, and a whole host of other reasons, 100 million women in China, India, and other countries aren't alive today that should be. There's 100 million missing women. There's 100 more women that are supposed to be in this world that aren't today because too often the world is still living in the world of Jesus' day and they haven't embraced the teachings of this great rabbi who wasn't just a great teacher, he was the very son of God coming to restore the image of God originally created in Genesis chapter 1. And so the binding of feet of women in China and the suicide funeral pyres of women in India and the abandonment of little girls in India and the mutilation of females in Africa, and polygamy and lack of education. Jesus is against these things, completely against them, because he values women. These are things that have gone on in the 20th and 21st centuries, 
and they prove that humanity still needs to embrace the message of Jesus. And we could all shake our head and talk how bad it is. But in our own culture, in our own neighborhoods, in our churches, and in our homes, too many women are still being bombarded with these kinds of ideas. Oh, not as directly as the ones maybe I listed. The ones that we hear when we look at Pastor James John, who we partner with in India, to, to, to develop an orphanage for young little girls. An orphanage we helped build and a church we built for them. Not, not, maybe not like that. But too many women in this world don't see themselves as Jesus sees them. And today, on this Mother's Day, on a day when at this church we try to elevate the status of all women, I wonder what it would look like if every woman in this church saw themselves as Jesus sees them. I wonder what would happen if men rose up and stewarded the value of women as Jesus did. If we spoke into them truth and life and value. I'd love to tell you I've done perfectly at this. I haven't. But I'm growing to be more like my Savior. And the Scripture tells us men that as we grow to be more like our Savior, that when we were children, we may have spoke and acted and did and thought things like children do. But as we become men, we put away childish things. So Dorothy Sayers, who is a friend of C.S. Lewis, my favorite author, she was a brilliant writer and one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, a university that was started for the express purpose of advancing the gospel of Jesus. A hundred years ago, she wrote these words. Perhaps it is no wonder that women were the first to the cradle and the last to the cross. They had never known a man like Jesus. There had never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coerced or patronized them, never made crazy or arch jokes about them. And he never treated them as either the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. He rebuked without demeaning, and he praised without condescension. And he took their questions and their arguments seriously. And he never mapped out their sphere for them, and he never urged them to be more feminine, and he never jeered at them for being more female. He had no axe to grind, and no uneasy male dignity to try to defend. So perhaps there is no reason to wonder why the women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. So women at four corners. Our commitment is to you that we will probably do it imperfectly. But around here, we want to elevate your status. We want to partner with moms in the development of their kids, their little daughters, to know what Jesus speaks about them. That's why you must make it a priority to be here and bring your children so that we can speak the words over them that you're speaking over them, so that we can help them see the very words of Jesus. Prize your lives. Use your gifts. Build your character. Develop and grow your mind. Fight your sin. Take great risks. Dare great dreams. Pray great prayers. Offer humble service. Study the scriptures. Guard your tongue. Unleash your strength. Do your call. Not because you have to prove anything to anybody, but because you have been given an amazing privilege made in the image of God. And we, your brothers in this room, are growing to become better stewards of the value God has put in you. We will encourage and lift it up and elevate it and pray for you. And listen, and where we don't, we'll humble ourselves and admit our sin and ask God's Spirit to change us. 
don't you grab your connect card? Let's take a few steps together. I wonder if there's any men or women in this room that would say, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. If you want to begin a relationship with this Jesus, that culture has told us one thing about him, but the scripture and history bears out another. You can check this box and we'll send you some information to encourage you along the way and help you understand what that commitment looks like. Or next step B. If there's anybody in the room that says, look, this Jesus guy is amazing and I want to identify with him. The way you do that is through baptism. If you check the box, one of our pastors on staff will connect with you and help you move forward in that. We baptized, I think, five last week. An amazing joy for me around here. and We love doing this and helping people identify with this Jesus that has changed the world. All right, next step C. I wonder if anybody would say, men, this is to you. I want to be a better steward of the relationships with the woman in my life, the one. I'm not asking you to solve everybody's problem in this step, but pick the one woman in your life. If you're a, a son, it's your mom. If you're a husband, it's your wife. If you're a brother, it's your sister. The one woman in my life. And for the next 30 days, I want to go above and beyond. Above and beyond. Not that you end at 30, but over the next 30 days, I want to turn up the heat on this value that Jesus had as he thought about women. So beginning on this Mother's Day, if you want to do that, check the box. We'll pray with you, and I'll send you a few small encouragements uh, via email on Wednesday on how you could do this. Next step, D. I wonder if there's anybody interested in leading a small group around here for the summer or fall semesters. This is where we get together and we look at the teachings of Jesus and we do life together and we serve our community in an attempt to let the life-changing message of Jesus change our lives. Not just the world, but change us. The power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And the next step B. I wonder if anybody would say, I'd like to receive the link to sign up for the reading through the Bible in our new facility plan. So we're going to read through the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22, cover to cover, table of contents to map. And if you want to participate in that, we'll send you the link. Check the box, you'll get the link, and then you can sign up at a time that's convenient for you. We're trying to make sure that we bathe our new facility in both prayer and scripture. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all people, and it's the place where God's word is going to be delivered, hopefully in power and authority, and it'll change people's lives. If you want to be a part of that, check the box. Let's pray, and then we'll sing one more song together. Lord Jesus. You're amazing. God, I'm blown away by how much you love women. By how much you elevated their status. God, as I think about that, I think about how much then you must love everyone. And so God, today in this place, we celebrate what you celebrate. We celebrate the fact that we are made in your image. That we're called to not own, but to steward those amazing blessings you put in our lives. Our time, our talent, our treasure, our relationships. Our influence, our intellectual capacity, it's all yours. And yet you've called us to an amazing, humble, and privileged position to steward those things for your glory and for our good. Thank you. God, today we want to say to you, thank you for our moms. Thank you for our sisters. Thank you for our daughters. God, help us as men to be stewards. And help us as women to walk in the reality that you've called us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.